At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee in for Scott Wapner today. The bulls are in charge today. The NASDAQ and S&P 500 hitting new record highs. Should you keep riding this tech field rally or should you be bracing for a pullback? Our investment committee today, Joe Terranova, John Najarian, Courtney Gibson, president of Loop Capital Markets, and Jenny Harrington, CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. Welcome to you all. Let's begin with the markets at this hour. The S&P 500 having its longest weekly win streak since December. You see there, 3420 is your level up seven-tenths of percent. The Nasdaq also coming off a fourth positive week, longest weekly winning streak since December. The comp posting a half percent gain at this point. Uh, Courtney Gibson, I'll kick it off with you. Are you surprised at where we are in the markets, given what is going on around the world with the coronavirus? Hey, Melissa, it's been a while. Good to see you today. Um, Am I surprised? I'm surprised at how quickly the market has come back. However, we have a market that wants to go up. We are, as a people, and I hate to get theoretical on this, but it's a little bit, it's okay every once in a while. People do want to see things better. And I think whether it's the analysts, whether it's companies, expectations were very, very low if they were given at all. And I think the fact that we've seen a little bit of a glimmer of hope, these markets wanted to see that. And I think we're going to continue to see that rise as we move forward. If people can put masks on, we might come out of this even faster on the uh, the economic front. But right now, the markets are looking 12 months ahead, and they're saying we do see ourselves coming out of this. And, uh, and we're seeing that with the rise here in the S&P and the market overall. I think that notion of, of people being optimistic and wanting to be optimistic, you want to be optimistic that convalescent plasma will work, especially now that it's approved for a broader swath of patients. You want to be optimistic that an AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine could be fast-tracked for use Absolutely. by the fall here, Jenny. At the same time, you know, you take a look at valuations, and can you get behind this market? I can't. I could, even last week I could, but at this point I can't get behind it. And I'll tell you what really has me unnerved in the last week or so is the fact that Apple and Tesla have run up as much as they have following their share splits because that doesn't, their stock splits, because that doesn't add any value to anything. All it does is change the psychology. And I would say I haven't seen huge, huge echoes of 98, 99 until this, and this is making me nervous. So I look at that and I think that it's illogical that Apple would be up 30% just on a stock split. It reminds me of back then. And then I look at something else, which is, we've got now Fang and Microsoft, right? So the six, we've got them making up 27% almost of the S&P 500. Meanwhile, their earnings only make up 14% of the S&P 500 and their revenues make up one and a half percent. So I see a huge disconnect there. So I'm comfortable staying invested. I'm comfortable being in my stocks. I am not comfortable in the broader market, and I'm not comfortable with the multiple that we're trading at. Comfortable staying invested is comfortable staying in your stocks. I mean, effectively, you are bullish on the market. 
I mean, holding your position is <laughs> effectively I don't know. I don't a buy, right? Yes, but I don't own that top part of the market. So I've mm -hmm. really underperformed. So I don't own the S&P 500. I own something that would be closer to the equal weighted S&P 500 or the Russell 2000. That's more where I am. Joe, it's tough to be a portfolio manager out there and not be in the top five stocks in the S&P 500 if you want to meet your benchmark. Yes, and I think it's also tough to be a portfolio manager as you look forward to the month of September and the end of 2020. Uh, and to try and think logically that we are overconcentrated, that there is an overvaluation. Uh, because if you go through that very thoughtful and logical exercise, what you'll find yourself doing is taking off risk in an environment where clearly risk on is the proper way to be. And with that in mind, you'll fall behind as it relates to the year's end performance. So I think it's very... <clears throat> I think we've lost Joe. So, so uh, Doc, I'll kick it over to you. Same question there. Hard to be out of these stocks when these stocks are driving the overall market. Yeah, Melissa. And uh, I think it was about a week ago that Jim Cramer talked about the splits that were upcoming, the four for one and the five for one, Apple and Tesla. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the beneficiaries that I talked about back then was, of course, the exchanges where these stocks and options are traded, Melissa as well as the Options Clearing Corp. Um, and no greater evidence of that, uh, that risk off sort of feel, even though you want to participate, than the fact that the options have tripled in Apple. I mean, we were averaging 750,000 options a day in early August for Apple, Melissa. Now on Friday, we almost traded 2.2 million options on Friday alone. Uh, then you look at Tesla, it's a similar sort of thing. Uh, it was, it's smaller numbers, 330,000, and they jumped to over 700,000. But obviously the reason, at least in my mind, Melissa, for both of those seeing a big surge in options is people aren't that comfortable buying a $2,000 stock like Tesla, but they're fine putting on a limited risk trade in the options, especially ahead of that five for one split in Tesla. So your interpretation, of, one. Sorry, sorry, your interpretation of, this, of this increased activity is that people are actually getting into these stocks at this point, or is this a, a stock replacement strategy? Is this a, a hedge against a holding right now? I think it's all three. You, okay. uh, because you're such a, a maven in the markets, Melissa, you know exactly the right question to ask, and that is it. It is hedging. It is stock replacement, as you say, people getting out of those, those stocks and replacing the long exposure with the options. And uh, to a certain extent, uh, there are new positions, people that haven't been in these, that have said, you know what, I really can't even afford a round lot, 100 shares, of these stocks. And yes, you can buy fractional. But if I'm in these options, and the options, of course, will have give you that same four for one or five for one exposure after these splits happen, Melissa. Um, I think that's going to be uh, exactly why the folks at Robinhood, mm -hmm. the folks at E-Trade and any of the do-it-yourself or DIY brokerage houses are seeing such a surge in those two stocks in particular, but it's not limited to those. It's across the board, but because of the stock splits, that's why there's added focus on these, Melissa. A little bit of what I'm hearing from, from Doc here, um, Joe, is that people want to remain in a lot of these winners, and that's what you were getting at before the feed yes. uh, went down. <laughs> you want to pick up on that thought? Yes. Uh, 
I, I, I yes, I would love to. I, I, I think you're coming towards the end of the year, and you do have, I don't want to call it a chase for performance, but I would call it more a recovery in performance. I think a lot of portfolio managers de-risked significantly in the month of March and early April, and they were kind of late getting back uh, reallocated into the market. So I think looking forward, while logically I agree exactly with what uh, Courtney and Jenny said at the top of the show, there is certainly an over-concentration as it relates to mega-cap growth. Logically, you could look around the world and see the challenges that are still ahead as it relates to a potential second wave with the virus. But as a portfolio manager at this point, Melissa, you have to be invested right now. And you have to ask yourself the question, if I'm not going to be invested, where exactly am I going to be reallocating capital towards right. as we go uh, into the end of the year? Will I be going to the emerging markets? Will I be going to Europe? Yes, there's been modest recoveries there. When you look at the uh, interest rate environment, there was a suggestion in the last couple of weeks that we'd see a spike in rates. I've got a 10-year right back at 65 basis points. That doesn't look a spike to me. So very challenging and complicated. Where do I put my money if I am going to make that very thoughtful decision based on over-concentration and overvaluation? So there is no alternative. We are back to that argument, Courtney. And does that make you feel safer in this market run or more cautious about this market run? Look, you can say that we don't have an alternative. I personally love tech, as we've talked about, but I also have a longer time horizon on my personal portfolio. And the clients that trade at Loop Capital, which tend to be larger institutional investors, are going to have exposure in tech. Fortunately for all of us, so here goes my hope again, Melissa, fortunately for all of us, these are not companies that are fly-by-night companies. Facebook, right, when you talk to advertisers and where they're able to get the ROI on their investment, the return on investing that ad spend dollar, they are getting it from Facebook. So why would you not want to own it? When you think about Amazon and whether it's the work from home phenomenon or if you want to look at how our economy is changing, why would you not want to be invested in an Amazon for the long term when you think about how the consumer is changing and how they're buying things? These aren't, again, flybynight.com, CourtneyGibson.com, type companies at this juncture. These are real companies with real benefits to the consumer and long-term potential for growth. I'm not fearful there, but at the same, by the same token, I can balance my portfolio with some value names. I do hold financials. Mm-hmm. I am holding home builders. I am looking at how is it that for the long term, you can have a that very balanced portfolio right. and invest capital. What I'm not doing is buying the index as my sole way of investing in mm-hmm. this market. If you are a stock picker and you do have names that you believe in on a fundamental basis, as well as, again, just when you think about an Apple and for the long term, again, good leadership, sound products, something that consumers want to buy, I can pick those names as well. And our clients are also being good stock pickers right now for the long term, which is where you got to be. All right, let's uh, home in on Apple here. It is actually hitting a new all-time high in today's session, getting its price target raised to a new street high of 520 bucks over at Morgan Stanley. Um, Doc, I'll go to you. Uh, you know, your brother Pete loves this analyst, Katie Huberty. <laughs> thinks she's the axe yeah, in the space, and here she is raising the price target to 520. I mean, you know, to Courtney's point here, in terms of getting comfortable with the long-term growth prospects, very low interest rates really helps investors also get their heads around valuations where they are yeah uh, it certainly does Melissa and when you're looking at um, you know Apple and they're borrowing basically at the same rate that the United States can borrow at 
Uh, it, it's just crazy. I mean, the markup on how much they have to pay extra over and above what the full faith and credit of the United States is, is amazing. Um, and it's a 200 plus billion dollar revenue generator every year since 2016. Um, the profitability, you know, the bottom line numbers, Melissa, you report all the time, they're north of $50 billion um, on an annual basis. Uh, that's just incredible. So uh, can I justify where it is right now? Well, you know, I think obviously we'd all have to get creative to do that. But on the other hand, I don't really want to get out of this one ahead of that four for one stock split, Melissa. I see every reason in the world to do exactly what you talked about a little bit ago, and I've done that, hedging. I would encourage everybody who has a big position in any of these stocks that have run up. Zoom, we saw what happened when outages hit in Zoom today. Um, Apple, uh, Tesla, any of these stocks, Facebook, I think you're wise to have some sort of a hedge on, but I think you want to stay in this sector in this name mm -hmm. of the sector, the leader of the sector in particular. This is your biggest position, uh, John. Uh, Jenny, I'll go to you. You know, the yes, analyst here says 11% uh, EPS Kager is conservative here, doesn't think there's a risk. The App Store catalysts are going to be the launch of the 5G phone in the fall, as well as a stock split. And yet you think that, that th this is a weak call. I do. And John said something, and by the way, I really, really admire and like Katie and love her work also. So I was surprised mm -hmm. by finding this a weak call. And John said something really critical here. He said, you have to get creative. And I think that that's what Katie did. She, first of all, uses a free cash flow multiple based on peers. Apple doesn't have any peers. They don't have any actual peers. So then she's stretching that out. And the peers that she probably uses in this are also trading at kind of sky high multiples. And then she uses a sum of the parts valuation. I don't see why you would use a sum of the parts valuation for a company like, Micro, like Apple. You use that for a company like GE. So I have problems with both of those. I look at her, well, the Kager earnings is 11%. It was 5% earnings growth, 19 to 20. 27% 20 to 21, but then it reverts back to only 2% in her estimates from 21 to 22. That's pretty weak. So I look at that and I think that there's too much of a focus here on the magnitude of growth in a short period and not the duration of growth over a longer period. So altogether, I take this as a very weak, um, as a very weak upgrade and someone trying to justify getting on the Apple bandwagon and trying to use valuation models that'll that'll bolster their argument versus something really compelling. Or we've seen this time and time again, particularly in this run, Joe, where the stocks mm -hmm. get way ahead of even the most bullish analysts. I mean, fact of the matter is she was at 431 as a price target. In order to justify her overweight rating, she had to raise that price target or bring her rating down effectively. So there you are. Um, so does that, that make you a little bit more skeptical when analysts come out here putting forth a lot of the same arguments that had existed for the well, stock before, right. except for maybe the four-for-one stock split, which, which didn't happen until you know, just a few weeks ago. But otherwise, everything else is pretty much intact. Yeah, but I, I think generally over the last uh, 8 to 12 weeks, you've seen a lot of that behavior from analysts mm -hmm. where they're yeah. catching up in, in terms of, of price uh, to what has been a surprising market recovery. Um, back to my earlier comments, just in terms of performance and the way you're thinking about risk, um, you certainly have to have some form of exposure to the big four. My exposure is through Apple and Microsoft. So my hands are kind of tied behind my back. I respect what Jenny's saying about an underwhelming uh, theory that's being presented here. 
on why you're raising Apple's uh, price target. Uh, but Apple and Microsoft are incredibly important right now in my portfolio. I do think there's some positives that have been uh, acting as tailwinds for Catalyst, uh, rather for uh, Apple. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the subscription bundle looking forward, I think, is potentially good. I think the recovery that we're seeing uh, for China is good. And I think for the new investor into Apple, the stock split is good. I'll reiterate what I said last week. If you do not own Apple, you uh -huh. don't own Apple, and you have that average retail account of about $10,000, okay, there's a difference between buying Apple at $550 and buying Apple uh, around $125. There's a big difference in terms of what your portfolio is going to look like in a diversification mannerism. Right. That's a good point, Joe. Uh, let's quickly hit Tesla, hitting a new all-time high as well today. Wedbush updating its new bull case <laughs> price target to $3,500. Uh, John, this is your third largest position. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of kind of the, the top of that pyramid, uh, uh, Melissa. But it wasn't because I added to it. It was because of that massive jump that Tesla made in the past week and uh, over the past three months, in fact. It is uh, a stock that um, I don't have a news kernel out there that tells me this is why it's making that move, Melissa. Yeah, they broke ground in Texas, but... That'll be a while before that plant goes online, of course. Yes, they're going to start selling the, uh, the Model Y in China, but that's not till 2021. So the most recent news that you look at doesn't really justify this. But again, to Joe's point, there are a lot of folks who will start putting on positions into it. And clearly, as I detailed already, the volume of trade, stock and options, both have doubled or tripled over the past several sessions as people get ready for that five for one stock split in Tesla. Um, I, I think this is a stock that, you know, it's one of those that you shake your head at, Melissa, when you say, I can't believe this thing was a 20 some odd dollar stock right. just a few years ago. And now here it is a um, hundred yeah. times that. It's Cor an amazing vehicle. Courtney's just shaking your head at it, period. <laughs> Don't even come. I mean, I'm with you. So remember that comparison I made on, on the companies that you could totally get behind and understand? Um, for the same reason, though, that I think Apple has run up a little bit here, unlike us who would look at kind of the forward guidance and earnings and um, more the fundamentals of the name, um, both of these names are really rising, in my humble opinion, for the exact same reasons. Though for the long term, Apple is the name that I think earns has earned that whereas tesla for them they have a cult following and so for for john and jane who absolutely want to own this name it makes it a lot more affordable on the actual stock price so jenny and i go back and forth on what price means that's a whole nother show to itself but we'll just say on the share price the ability to purchase it into their portfolio now they're saying hey i can now purchase this i can buy it and they're going to and that name is rising um because of that at mm -hmm. this point it's not because of the potential um or the, whether it's a good company or not. So. All right. Well, while the stock market is hitting new highs, the U.S. economy is still struggling. Steve Leisman is here with a closer look at why economists are growing worried. Are they, Steve? Yeah, Melissa. Uh, the good news is they expect this recession to end sometime.
this year, the bad news is a lot of them are looking for maybe a second or a knock-on or a double-dip recession to follow. The National Association for Business Economics out with their uh, policy survey. What they find is, I'll make this chart easy for you, uh, 48%, those are the two middle bars there, they see a 25 to 33% chance of a double-dip. The two bars on the right, 31% see the chance of a double-dip as 50% or higher. Just 15%, that's your bar on the left, see the chances 10% or less. Looking at the other uh, outlook for policy, what you see is that uh, the, see the sec this recession ending in sometime in the second half of this year, the economy will recover, well, won't recover uh, the 2019 Q4 level until the middle of Q2, which is a pretty long way off. Finally, 40% uh, of business closures, they expect to be permanent but they're looking for a fiscal package of $1.5 trillion or higher. Melissa, I think the reasons why there's concern about the double dip is a second wave of the virus, uh, maybe a policy mistake in terms of not providing. Oh, and there's our tracking. I'm sorry, I forgot to get to that. 25.6 is the estimate for the third quarter. That's up five points. So we are indeed strengthening in this current quarter. Maybe the stock's reflecting that. But getting back, Melissa, to the reasons for the double dip, maybe a second wave of the virus, uh, a policy mistake in terms of not providing additional stimulus, but also maybe a second wave of economic pain, which could come potentially from the scarring and the businesses that we've been talking about are not going to reopen uh, as even once the economy reopens. Yep. All good points, Steve. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me, Steve Leisman. Uh, Jenny, you concerned about a double dip here. And, and is that one of the reasons why you're a little bit more cautious of the markets? Um, I wouldn't say double dip, but I would say plateau or a mm. slight drift down. And so that is definitely why I think that there's a lot that's been paid forward. And I think that there's a lot of emotion in the market. And I think as reality sets in, in terms of job losses and what people can spend, what the consumer really looks like coming out of this, there might be disappointment ahead. We might see softer economic data along the way, too. Yep. Well, one area of the economy that is uh, on fire right now is home building. The ETF that tracks the home construction stocks hitting new intraday all-time highs. DR Horton, Lennar, the housing-related names like Lowe, Sherwin-Williams at new highs. Um, Courtney, let's go to you. You own Beezer, Toll Brothers, which reports this week. Can these names continue to run if there is a double dip or a, a plateauing of this recovery? Well, I think part of the reason they actually are moving forward is a couple of things. One, low rates. Rates will continue to stay low. Obviously, if people have, don't have jobs, then you can throw this all out the window. But if you assume that, okay, things are going to slow down a little bit or we're going to continue this work from home due to COVID, people are going to want more space. They're going to be buying homes. They're going to be improving on their homes. So when you think about new home construction, when you think about um, existing home sales and the rising prices there, you're going to see these things move forward. I think the consumer, obviously, at the, at the beginning here was what helped us kind of into our last high. Um, and uh, as we look at home builders, kind of as we look at what's going to continue to help us to rise going forward, this is a space that I think people want to be in and should continue to buy. I've been talking about Toll Brothers now for a while, and it is a name that I like, um, and the same thing for Baser Homes. So uh, it's something you should pay attention to as rates continue to stay low and people actually get a taste of what it's like to not live in a 500 square foot box um, in, in a condo, which many of us have lived in in the city, and you get out and get a, a little bit more space, you like that. And millennials, um, again, people are thinking about moving outside of some of these urban areas, and that bodes well for this space in the sector. If they still have their jobs, <laughs> if they if still they have their jobs, their if job. they're not getting pay but cuts. If they don't, but let's think about this. If uh -huh. they if they don't, right, and you can no longer afford 
to live in a, a major metropolitan area and you start to move out further or the rents tend to be more expensive. Now, this is kind of crazy, right? It costs you more to rent than to own. Guess what? You're going to then take that little bit of savings maybe that you had and figure out how can I live as comfortably as I possibly can outside of where I am now and maybe move 100 miles outside of the city into someplace else right. and, and be out there rather than um, in the city. So kind of same themes when you think about it can still play out uh, in the event we have a prolonged uh, unemployment rate, which again, you really hope that people do get their jobs back, but you can live a lot more comfortably outside of major metropolitan areas right. with less money. Or people will just fix up the homes that they have, whether it be a 2,500 square box a condo that they live in or, or a palatial exactly. home, Joe. You're exactly. sticking with HD. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, HD am, I am sticking. Low. Joe, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, Joe. Joe. Um, I, th I think Courtney was saying that she's in HD and Lowe's, and I agree with that. I'm in HD, and I also think one of the, the benefits, uh, besides what we're talking about with the tailwind uh, from the consumer and home building, is just the dramatic transition that Home Depot has had to becoming really one of the ESG darlings. Um, we all know uh, when you look at ESG holdings, you're talking about Apple and Microsoft, but you could add to that list Visa and a name like Home Depot. In addition, I would offer, while very statistically important, mega cap growth and the big four to where the overall market goes, I think everyone should be watching as a leading indicator housing, the consumer, and software. I think those three elements were incredibly resilient uh, back during a very strained period of March and April. Uh, and if we were to see any signs of weakness there, uh, I think that would telegraph to you further weakness or potential weakness, rather, for the S&P 500 itself. All right. Check out this mystery chart here. It is up 40% in the past two months, up 75% in the past year. And this stock just got its price target raised to a new street high ahead of earnings this week. One of our experts owns this. We'll unveil the name and debate it in our call of the day. Halftime reports back in two minutes. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Let's get to the headlines with Sue Herrera. Hey, Sue. Hello, Melissa. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. At a contentious hearing on Capitol Hill, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy is denying accusations that mail delays are the result of politically motivated cost cutting. Committee Chair Carolyn Maloney pressing DeJoy about recent delivery problems. We are hearing from constituents about significant delays in the delivery of mail, medicines, food, and other supplies. These delays are especially concerning and potentially life-threatening during the coronavirus crisis. The National Hurricane Center warning of increasing risks from Tropical Storm Laura to the Gulf Coast. Some computer models show it becoming a major hurricane before coming ashore late Wednesday. 
Meanwhile, Tropical Storm Marco is now expected to weaken to a depression tonight. It is currently about 55 miles southeast of the mouth of the Mississippi River. You are up to date. That's the news update. Melissa, back to you. Thank you very much, Sue Herrera. Let's get to Best Buy here. Price target raised to a new street high of 135 or Raymond James. The firm reiterates its strong buy rating, saying invest in the best. The stock is trading at all-time highs today. It is our call of the day. Joe, you own this one. How long have you owned this for, and what do you like about it still? So this is one of the names that I purchased back in that very stressed and strained environment of late March and early April. Uh, it's been challenging to stay with it. Uh, they reopened their stores on June 15th, and they uh, talked about a one-month period where they saw 15% growth. Um, I think a lot of that growth is coming from the work from home and the remote learning from home, people going in, buying the laptops and the printers and the desktops. Does that make me a little bit nervous? Yes, indeed it does, because I don't know if you're going to see that type of performance looking forward over future quarters. So the expectations are high as they uh, get set to report their earnings. Mm -hmm. uh, stock made a 52-week high uh, just this morning. Uh, nervous about it. I'm not going to get out of the name, Melissa, because I think it's the right place to be. Uh, but I will be very judicious. I will be very quick uh, to pull the trigger and take a profit if I see a miss. And one of the things that I think is going to be very important here is looking at margins. Uh, you should expect that you'll see margins coming in in the low 20s. Um, that's good. Uh, but I, I also think the operating margin needs to be strong in addition to the gross margin itself. So uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not hiding that I'm a little bit nervous about this upcoming report. Uh, as a as a holder of Best Buy. Yeah, I mean, you make some good points there, Joe. I mean, there, there's got to be some pull forward. I mean, the thinking, of course, you buy a few new laptops for your family, you're not going to be in the market for another laptop for, for quite some time there. And then you set yourself up possibly for difficult comps a year from now or three quarters from now. Um, Courtney, you're, you're in this one as well. Are you nervous? I'm actually not in this one. I was oh, in not. it okay. a while ago and got out of this name, but um, it, it'll be a, it'll be a short tell sign as to how things are going. I think it's something though that we need to think about. We always talk about consumer discretionaries versus consumer staples, right? What do you need to have versus what you have, what you want to have, right? And I think Best Buy has begun to shift from the discretionary category to a staple. So yes, Melissa, once you buy a laptop, you're not buying a new one every year. Um, but when you go in to get that laptop, are you thinking about a new television? Have you thought about buying AirPods? Have you thought about that new washer and dryer that you haven't replaced in 10 years and you see it when you go in to buy that laptop and maybe you don't buy it today, but you go back in a month from now and you go get that. Um, Best Buy has done some pivoting and some adjusting to the new, what I'll call Amazon era, which by the way, as you all know, I love Amazon. Um, but if Best Buy allows you to match pricing. So if I did see it on Amazon and I want to go in and check out something that I saw there and it's $100 cheaper, Best Buy says, get it today, get it now, get it from us, and we'll give you that Amazon price. So I think they're doing some interesting pivoting. And so what I like to see is management adjusting to the future. So this is a name that if I was in, I wouldn't likely be selling it. Mm -hmm. And you might see some continued growth moving forward. All right, let's get some more bullish calls here. Bring in Rahel Solomon with the very latest from today. Rahel. Hi, Melissa. Yes, and quite a hodgepodge of companies. So let's start with Bank of America upgrading Deer to buy. Price target goes to 234 from $194. So the note points out that margins in agriculture and turf are finally improving after five to seven consecutive quarters of declining margins. And Melissa, even more promising, Deer has been able to expand those margins while sales are down. And corn prices are about half of what they were the last time margins were at these levels. 
Uh, if you want some exposure to biotech growth without the volatility of clinical risks, well, Berenberg likes Seattle Genetics. It's assuming coverage with a buy. Price target here is 187. Analysts note a high level of enthusiasm for some of the company's newly commercialized drugs and fastly getting upgraded to outperform. Also, Raymond James price target here is 100 bucks. So analysts are bullish on growth prospects and the company's opportunities to take market share in the $50 billion compute market and see this 28% dip from its 52-week high as an entry point. So despite the recent slide, this is still up 320% this year and Melissa nearly 700% from its March low. That March low, by the way, was $10.63. You can see uh, it's trading last I checked about $83. So quite a run it has had. Yep. Certainly has. Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. We got more trades ahead, including John Nigerian's unusual activity plays, plus one of the ETFs hitting a new intraday high today. But first, take a check of the S&P 500 sector heat map, two sectors in the red, real estate and healthcare. And a reminder here, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. Halftime is back right after this. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Let's get to Bob Pisani with ETF Edge. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. You know, momentum and IPOs are hot in the ETF world right now. Our guest today, John Davi, a story of portfolio advisors, and Kathleen Smith from Renaissance. John, the momentum ETF, MTUM, a new all-time high today. And no surprise, new highs for Apple, Tesla, Amazon, Alphabet. They're the critical components in that sector. How much further do we have to go in this kind of momentum play? Seems a little stretched right now. You know, I think, Bob, that as long as the Fed is anchoring interest rates at 0%, as long as they're doing quantitative easing, uh, I think stocks have a green light. So we own MTUM in our portfolios. We use that as a hedge to some of our value names. So I wouldn't be, you know, trimming, you know, stocks at this point. I know we're going to have some volatility around the election time, but as far as I'm concerned, equity still have the green light. Okay, Kathleen, your IPO ETF, you run the Renaissance Capital IPO ETF. It's one of the big success stories of the year. It's up 45%. You're nearing $100 million in market capitalization. Why are the recent IPOs, the recent ones, outperforming the rest of the market by such a great uh, amount right now? Well, basically, IPOs represent new economy companies. It's sort of the bread and butter of the IPO market. And in our portfolios are these virtual office plays, such as Zoom Video and Slack, the messaging company, and also digital commerce, uh, Rocket Mortgage, Fast Turnaround Mortgages, a Lemonade, a self-service, a renter's insurance. And finally, with interest rates so low, 
it favors growth companies, and growth companies are basically the sweet spot of the IPO market. So we're in a, a good spot right now, given the current conditions in the market. And, and we've got some big names coming up, too. We've got DoorDash already has filed confidentially. It's been reported. Uh, Airbnb. Uh, we've got Palantir is sitting out there. These are some fairly big names. What are the prospects for the remainder of the year for the IPO market? We're expecting, these names are expected to come and many others. We're expecting a very robust period between now and the year end and some anxiety because the election creates some uncertainty. Now, the, the benefit of this, these big unicorns, which have taken so long to come out, we think will probably come out at discounted valuations in this new environment and with the rush to come out. And many investors want to participate in these well-known names. So it'll be a very interesting uh, finish to, to year, the year 2020. Okay. John and Kathleen, thanks very much. Coming up at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, CNBC, edge. CNBC.ETFHedge.com. Not only is momentum outperforming, so is quality. We'll dive deep into what's driving that, what else to expect from the IPO market for the rest of the year, and what to do about yield, a big problem for investors. Christian Magoon of Amplify ETS will also be on deck as well. Don't miss that. Melissa, back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you. Bob Pisani. Up next, the Big Short 2.0. New York Times reporter Kate Kelly will join us for her latest piece on how hedge funds profited off the pain of the malls. Half time's back in 30 seconds. Call it the Big Short 2.0, a new piece of the New York Times highlighting how hedge funds are profiting from pain during COVID. It was a trade you heard about on halftime back in March when billionaire investor Carl Icahn told Scott Wapner why he was betting against shopping malls. This is the same kind of warning I was talking about before. You're going to have this blow up too and nobody is even uh, looking at it and, and who's going to suffer again you know who's going to suffer the individuals or maybe the wealth manager put the money in are, are going to suffer just like they did in uh in 08 i don't know if the government is going to bail them out but uh, uh and, and now yeah you're right right now these shopping malls could not it could not pay back or restructure their loans so they're going to default. And I, I really believe, almost definitely, they're going to default. New York Times' Kate Kelly joins us now on the CNBC Newsline. Kate, it's great to speak with you. Um, this trade has really bedeviled a lot of people who had long been calling for the death of the malls. Um, but here specifically in this trade, people are betting against specific slices, correct, of the CMBS index. That's right, Melissa. The CMBX um, is an index. Uh, there are 13 different versions of it, each attached to different uh, mortgage origination periods. The CMBX 6 is the one I wrote about today and the one Icon was short, among others. Um, it has a heavy exposure to retail. 40% of the thousands of mortgages that are referenced in the tranches of this index uh, are in the retail sector, and a lot of those are within shopping malls, 39 different malls nationwide to be exact. So those that are bearish on the future of the shopping mall, <laughs> either before the pandemic or during it, uh, zeroed in on the CMBX 6 as a way to express that thesis. What was fascinating to me, Kate, was how this uh, trade came uh, to Carl Icahn, and it was from a, a 31-year-old credit analyst. 
Well, okay, so she deserves a lot of credit for the fundamental research that mm-hmm. she did for her firm, which is MP. Her name is Katie McKee. However, in fairness to Carl, he was in this trade for several years. I believe oh. he first put it on in 2017. He had an analyst who did some fundamental research himself, so this was a position they had on for a while. I am told that they really jacked up the exposure that they had on the trade early last year in 2019, and at a certain point in there, they had 4 to $5 billion dollars. Uh, oh on the line. That's obviously capital plus leverage on paper. Um, But in any case, they had this on for a while, and last fall he invited Katie McKee, her colleague uh, Dan McNamara, who had worked on this trade with her as well, and their boss for like sort of a jam session to talk about what was going on in the mall space. At the time, there was some long pressure from Putnam and Alliance Bernstein, who had taken the opposite view. And uh, although those shorts over time would perform much better, obviously, um, it was a time of uncertainty in the market because it seemed to be taking quite a while for ICON and MP's thesis to play out. Right. But this trade right now, Kay, to your knowledge, is, is profitable. That's right. So ICON made a filing, Melissa, about a week ago saying that he had so far made $1.3 billion on the short. He still has the trade on. MP, which I was referring to, still has the trade on. Apollo, the private equity firm, which also runs um, a credit investing hedge fund internally, um, and some others that I mentioned in my story, Mudrick Capital, um, estimate that they've made $100 million or more and counting. Now, some have closed the trade out, um, but a bunch still have it on and have it on in size, including Icon. Are they expressing th- this negative view also in perhaps REITs or in, in equities, or is it, is it only um, on, the, on these slices of, of mortgages, basically? So I think it's all connected. Mm-hmm. Apollo's hedge fund, which did close out their short in the second quarter, had a combination of a CMBX 6 short as well as some other commercial real estate shorts. I think the read question is a good one because it's all connected. When you think about loans to malls, you're really thinking about loans primarily to to REITs that own mall space like Simon um, or Mace Rich or others. So those are possible short equity plays if you're interested in that space. Um, I haven't heard too much about the other CMBS opportunities here, but there definitely are a variety of ways to look at it and express the trade. I think what was interesting to people about this one index that I wrote about is Mm -hmm. a lot of the underlying mortgages mature in 2022. Uh So there was a feeling that the pain really is coming and could be even around the corner. And coronavirus um, simply sped things up. Right. Kate, it's a great piece. Thanks for for sharing it with us. Kate Kelly of the New York Times. Um, Jenny, I'll quickly go to you. You actually like a mall read. Is that right? No, no, no. Um, Not at all, actually. Good. So we did. (laughs) Sorry. So we did own Simon Property, which we bought in 2017, sold in 2019. The thesis originally was the assets were undervalued. Are as as that two-year gap closed, we realized our thesis was bunk, and we sold it. So I like highlighting that just to remind people to don't fall in love with the stock, reevaluate your thesis, get out, take your lumps. They can really pay off. We sold it at 150 last fall, and we're so glad we did. What we do own is a company called National Retail Properties, which owns um, standalone big box stores. So mm. like a Wawa or a Costco. Um, or car washes or 7-Elevens. And that's a very different take on commercial real estate and retail real estate that we think is far more successful and far more, um, far more 
uh, recession-proof, economic, economically resilient than a mall operator. Right. So that's, that's the company we like. John, mm -hmm. you're in store? Yeah, store capital, uh, like it. Um, Buffett's in here, and that's another reason to like it, Melissa. 5.5% dividend yield, but I didn't buy it for that. I bought it because I don't buy dividend-yielding stocks. Um, instead, I bought it because I thought it was just undervalued, Melissa, and thought it would, in all likelihood, mm -hmm. from $15 on the April lows, um, it's now, I think, $25, I'm looking for it to get to like 40 if it got there uh, in the shorter term, not like that, but in the shorter term, I'd take profits. All right. Still ahead. Dr. J seeing unusual options activity. His latest trades are coming up. Miss the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast. Market moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app and subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. Futures outlook, crude oil moving higher today, but stuck in a range of light as demand concerns keep the commodity hovering below 45 bucks a barrel. Let's bring in Jim Urio of TJM Services. Uh, Jim, nothing like a couple of storms over the Gulf of Mexico to help crude prices today. Well, that's the thing that attracted me to the crude chart, which you mentioned that it's been stuck in range. It's been such a boring, tight coil for about the last three weeks. And I'm looking at things that possibly could push it out of that coil. And you mentioned the storms. Yes, the persistent dollar weakness has been uh, should be good for crude as well perhaps some optimism about therapeutics. But all that, to me, this is mostly a technical trade. So uh, Oct Crude, last time I saw it was trading about 42.60. If it trades 43.05, so that's above where it is right now. To me, I do these stop-in trades quite a bit. You know, I want to see it break out of the range before I get in. I think it's a spot to buy it with a target up at 45.55 and then a stop place below 41.40. One more thing, too, is if it trades above 43.40, it actually might be a place to to press this trade, and I'll be talking about it on Twitter because that's the weekly breakout. But crude has been relatively boring. While other uh, assets that are attached uh, that are attached to the dollar have been more exciting lately. Yep, Urio, thanks, Jim Urio. Final trade straight ahead on the halftime report. By popular demand, unusual activity here. John is buying, uh, actually tracking big call buying in two transport stocks. So, John, go ahead. All right. And you're right. I am buying two, Melissa. Boeing is the first one. These August 175 calls, basically uh, 9,000 of them traded like right away, Melissa. That's 900,000 shares equivalent. Now they're up over 25,000 of these and the 180s as well. These are options that expire in four days. I'll probably be in them two to three days, Melissa. Second trade, as you say, transport-related CCL, Carnival Cruise Lines, September 16 calls. These are trading for much under a dollar, a cheap shot for something happening in a positive way between now and September. I'll be in these about three to four weeks, Melissa. All right, we got time for one viewer question, and this is for Courtney. Dan in Connecticut asks, should I buy more Target? Courtney, what do you tell Dan? I would say, Dan, if you're saying more Target, sure. You've already locked in some pretty nice gains so far, and if, whether you believe that we're going to have a double-dip recession, which I don't, by the way, but if you believe this COVID shift is going to continue, Target is a name you want to be in. They've adjusted beautifully, adapted beautifully, and are a great balance between kind of the essential and the nice-to-have. All right, time for the final trades. And Courtney, while we have you, take it away. Final trades. 
So, you know, we were talking about the malls, and I think I'm going to go with uh, SPG, Simon Property Groups. And you might look at me like I'm nuts. I think Josh called it his YOLO trade, and I'm going to go right along with him on this. One thing I think people are confusing here is the stock versus the credit side that the hedge funds were shorting. These on the, on the credit side, what they can do is they can say, here, take the keys back, mortgage holder, take it back, right? That does not affect Simon in the way that people are thinking it does. And Simon Property Group owns a nice diversified portfolio, mm-hmm. whether it's the um, the high-end malls like Lenox right. that you can't find a parking space at in Atlanta, all the way through the outlet. So that's a name that I think uh, I might follow as my yellow trade also. Okay. Jenny. Unum. dividend yield, three times earnings. Joe. IYT, Transports ETF. John. Angie, A-N-G-I, a lot of call activity, Melissa. All right, that does for us here in halftime. The exchange starts now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.